One year ago today, the Supreme Court upended abortion access in the United States. With breaking news from the Supreme Court at this hour, the justices handing down the highly anticipated ruling on abortion. A ruling that overturned the landmark Roe v. Wade decision and ends the constitutional right to an abortion. In the last year, 15 states have effectively banned abortion. At least 29 clinics in those states have shut their doors. A few have moved into states where abortion is still legal, but some have stayed put, facing down legal and financial risks to provide other health care services to their communities. There's no place else for them to go. Quite literally, no place else for them to go. Today, we go to Alabama to learn what happens to a clinic and a community when an abortion clinic can no longer provide abortions. From the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. I'm Alice Miranda Olstein. I am a healthcare reporter for Politico. Last month, Alice published a story in Politico magazine about the West Alabama Women's Center. It's an independent clinic that's been providing abortion care in Tuscaloosa for 30 years. In that time, the clinic's been burned to the ground, shot at, driven into, and had bomb threats. But it has always come back. What was really striking to me is that while the battle used to be very sort of literal and easy to see, it was screaming protesters outside, it was attempts in the past to physically attack the clinic. Now it's all invisible. It's funding threats. It's legal threats. It's things that they're dealing with sort of behind the scenes, but that could still threaten their existence. So, Alice, let's talk about some of those invisible threats. You mentioned funding. How has the clinic's financial situation changed since it stopped providing abortion about a year ago? So, It really took going there in person to understand just how precarious their situation is. The vast majority of their revenue completely disappeared when abortion was outlawed. So they used to make around $150,000 to $200,000 a month from people paying out of pocket for abortions or, in some limited cases, insurance reimbursements for abortions. That all ended, and so it's down just to $2,000 a month. And so they are scrambling to apply for grants and just plead with uh, folks for small dollar donations um, in order to float them. In your trip there, did you see how that pleading manifested itself in any way? Well, I think that me being there in the first place was part of it. They see getting press coverage as key to their survival. So unlike a lot of clinics that are very wary of press, they were very welcoming a lot of what they're facing is that folks in the state have known them for three decades as just an abortion clinic, and people don't know that they offer other services. And so I encountered patients who were students at the University of Alabama who were living just up the road and didn't know that the clinic existed and didn't know what they offered. When you talk about patient revenue going from you know, 150000 to $200,000 a month down all the way to 2000 I mean, that's mind-blowing. Do you have a sense how that shrinkage has changed the organization and how it operates? Absolutely. So one of the first things they did after the Dobbs decision was they converted from a 
for-profit to a nonprofit. They also had to lay off half the staff, which really reduced the capacity of how many patients they could see. They are also looking into other cost-saving measures. You know, a big thing that eats up a lot of their funding is having to send out samples to private labs, you know, urine and blood samples, etc., And so they are looking at trying to buy secondhand equipment to be able to do some of that work in-house and save a lot of money. But they're, they're on the edge. What impact does this all have on patient care, Alice? One thing that really struck me is that there are certain forms of contraception that they would love to stock that patients, you know, request and there's really demand for, but they can't afford to keep them in stock because of how extremely expensive they are. One example is a Nuva ring, which is a, a hormonal vaginal ring that somebody can put in and take out themselves. They don't have to depend on the availability of a healthcare provider to do it, like an IUD, but they can't afford to stock them. Things sound pretty rough, Alice. I mean, patient revenues have dropped to just about nothing. They've had to lay off half of their staff. They can't even afford some of the most basic products that their patients want. How is the West Alabama Clinic staying open? I mean, is it out of some sense of duty and obligation? Absolutely. There just aren't any healthcare providers uh, at all in some of these communities, but especially not, uh, you know, maternal healthcare providers. And so they were just afraid of what would happen to the people they serve if they were no longer there. Trans care, HIV care, um, preventative health care. I spoke a lot to the operations director of the clinic, uh, Robin Marty. We need to be here because there is just as much lack of access for everything as there ever was for abortion. Robin, she has sort of long gray hair and glasses. She's she's very frazzled these days. Um, she and Dr. Leah Torres, the clinic's only remaining physician, they were dedicated to staying because they knew that people would still have abortions, whether by ordering pills and taking them at home or by traveling out of state and coming back. And they were afraid that if they closed their doors, people wouldn't have anywhere where they could go in in those circumstances. And you got a good look at the clinic offering this abortion-adjacent care firsthand when you visited. Tell us about what you saw. So there was an undocumented couple who came into the clinic who didn't know that abortion was banned, which is apparently very common even a year later. They came in there expecting to be able to get an abortion that day. The clinic staff gently informed them that they they couldn't do that, but what they could do is have an ultrasound, see how far along in the pregnancy the woman was, and lay out her options. They found that she was well within the 10-week window where you can uh, have a medication abortion, ordering pills rather than having to have a procedure in another state. So they gave them information about where they can obtain them, and uh, the couple was really relieved about that. And they told them, you know, if you have an issue, you can come back afterwards. And this couple did not want to talk to you, right? Like, you saw them come in but had to get the details from the clinic staff. Alice, how difficult was it to get patients to talk to you? I'd guess that a lot of people probably wouldn't want to talk to a reporter in that situation. Yes, which is completely understandable. They're there to get care. They are, you know, in a very vulnerable situation. You know, I wouldn't talk to me either if I was in that circumstance. Um, So I was very grateful that a few patients were willing to open up. 
one challenge is that the patients who were willing to talk were, you know, more privileged people. They were white. They had more resources. And that's totally understandable why someone who's in a more vulnerable place would be more scared to talk. But it was tough because most of the people that depend on the clinic are poor people of color. And so it was hard to capture that while also, you know, respecting people's boundaries. When we come back, Alice talks about how the clinic is responding to the precarious legal landscape of the post-Dobbs world. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back. We're here with Politico healthcare reporter Alice Miranda Olstein, who spent several days this spring at the West Alabama Women's Center, a former abortion clinic in Tuscaloosa that has stayed open to provide non-abortion care. Alice, as you know, Alabama's state attorney general has actually threatened to prosecute people who, quote, aid and abet abortion. Are the clinic staff worried at all about going to jail if they keep providing this care, especially helping people get abortions using pills or go to other states? So the attorney general has sort of made some some threats along those lines that what they do could be considered aiding and abetting. But they have consulted with lawyers and said that because they just direct patients to already public information about, you know, pills and other states to travel to, they feel that it's protected by free speech. Um, and so they are going ahead and doing it because they they believe it's important. They believe it's important for patient care. You know, Robin Marty, who, who runs things there, told me that they want to really sort of test the boundaries in this new era. If we don't see where the edges are, we're never going to be able to gain back any sort of ground for anyone. They say, look, if we are too scared and and back down on this, you know, what's next? What, What next will they say we aren't able to talk about? Were you surprised that they struck that tone, that attitude? In some ways, because a lot of, you know, bigger mainstream um, abortion rights groups have not sort of taken that attitude. They have taken a much more cautious attitude. We have seen people pull back on, you know, offering perfectly legal forms of care like emergency contraception in states with bans. So it was definitely sort of a more defiant tone than I've seen from others. So West Alabama is one of about 30 clinics that have stayed open in states with abortion bans to provide other care. You talked to some of those clinics, too. Were their stories pretty similar? I found a lot of similarities, particularly in there being high demand for the sort of abortion adjacent services, the ultrasound before and the follow up after. I talked to a clinic in Texas where that's the majority of what they're providing these days. 
the one difference I found is that some of these other red state clinics that are trying to hang on, they're part of a multi-state network, and that gives them a little more security and stability. So, for instance, there's a group called Trust Women that has clinics across Oklahoma and Kansas. Abortion is banned in Oklahoma. It's still legal in Kansas. So the Kansas clinics in the same network are sort of able to subsidize the Oklahoma clinics so they can stay and keep providing other services. And West Alabama does not have that luxury. West Alabama really is an island unto itself. Yes, it is. You know, even within the state, there was one independent abortion clinic in Montgomery that shut down, couldn't couldn't hang on. One of the state's two Planned Parenthoods shut down, wasn't able to hang on. So they're really a, among a dying breed. You know, Alice, what you said at the beginning of our conversation has really stuck with me, that this battle West Alabama and other clinics are fighting has changed from this very visible and physically dangerous one to more behind the scenes, but maybe an even greater threat to their actual existence. Exactly. And whether these clinics survive or not really matters for lots of patients in areas where the state already has some of the worst rates in the country of maternal mortality, infant mortality, preterm birth, cervical cancer, teen pregnancy. There's always a long lag on healthcare data. So it's going to take a while for the true picture to really come into focus. But fewer providers and fewer clinics in a place where they are already really scarce, you know, it can't be good. <laughs> it can't help. And perhaps what you just said is why Robin and the other staff members at West Alabama have struck such a defiant pose. Yeah, they're really afraid of just people dying, people dying if they're not there for them. Dr. Leah Torres told me, look, this is just math. So when you have more pregnant people, you're going to have more pregnancy-related deaths. Again, that's math. So think of a bad pregnancy outcome and then make it worse. Make it affect more people. And that is the post-op's world. You know, they want to just do whatever they can to make the smallest amount of difference, even when it seems really insurmountable. You know, the clinic is dedicated to staying there in the hopes that the ban is someday lifted and abortion becomes legal again. As completely unthinkable as that may seem right now, they worry that if everyone leaves, there won't be anyone left to provide abortions if and when they ever became legal again. Given all of the challenges that the clinic is facing with money, with the state, in your mind, what are the odds that the West Alabama Women's Center is going to be around when the second anniversary of the Dobbs decision comes in 2024? I have no idea because... Honestly, it's surprising that they've been able to hang on this long. But if if they don't get a big infusion from a grant or a, a foundation or just a bunch of small donors, then yes, they will not be able to survive. Alice Miranda Oldstein, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on Tradeoffs. Thanks for having me. You can find a link to Alice's Politico magazine article on the West Alabama Women's Center on our website, tradeoffs.org. I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs.
Medicaid is undergoing an unprecedented transition right now. More than a million people have been kicked off the program since April as states prune their roles for the first time in three years. Next week, we check in on the great Medicaid unwinding and get an up-close look at what it's like to have your health care coverage hang in the balance. If you enjoyed today's episode of Trade-Offs, don't keep it to yourself. Tell someone else about it. Friend, colleague, family member. Better still, leave a rating or a review wherever you subscribe to us. NPR One, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you listen. The Trade-Offs team is producers Ryan Levy and Alex Olgan, editor Kate Cahan, executive director Jessica Silverman, audience engagement lead Shannon Crane, research reporter Soleil Shah, production engineer Cedric Wilson, sound designer Andrew Perella, executive editor Dan Gorenstein, and senior producer Leslie Walker. The Trade-Offs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Additional thanks this episode to Caitlin Myers. Thanks also to all our listeners who helped support our work, including Daniel Grossman, Almeta Russell, and Katie Elise Turner. Our media partner is SideFX Public Media, based at WFYI. Tradeoffs is supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, West Health, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Scan Foundation, the Sozose Foundation, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, California Healthcare Foundation, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of trade-off staff, advisors, or funders. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.